Well, join with me. Let's just bow our hearts and commit this time of study to the Lord this morning, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, for the technology that allows us to meet together in this way and to continue to study your word. Lord, as we saw in your word last week, that we're admonished, we're encouraged to keep meeting together, to not give up meeting together, and particularly as we see the day approaching. Oh, and Lord, as we've just been sharing and talking, Lord, we we see the day approaching, that day when you will return firstly to come and collect your bride to take us back to the place you've prepared for us, but then ultimately, Lord, to return to this earth, Lord, at the second coming, to establish the throne of David. Father, we just thank you that you are in complete control, and although these events that we are experiencing and seeing around us, Lord, are very troubling for the world, Lord, for us as Christians, Lord, we have great hope. And Lord, we pray that you give us that peace that your word says just surpasses and goes beyond our human understanding. And Lord, keep our hearts and minds stayed on you, we pray. And Lord, encourage us and bless us in this time of study this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I I was going to sing to you, but I thought I'd spare you. I want to read you the words of a song by a Christian artist called Steve Camp. If you want to look this up on the internet or Google it, uh, find it on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. The song is called Where Are the Heroes? Uh, And it's based on the chapter that we're looking at this morning on Hebrews chapter 11. The, The lyrics of the song say this, Oh, we learned of Abraham, who was ready to give his son, and Noah, who kept on till his job was done. Moses led his children safely through the wilderness. These men are gone. We're here to carry on. But tell me, why are we in such a mess? And then the chorus refrain says, Where are the heroes now, when we need them so desperately? Who will step out from the crowd and be strong enough to lead? Who will teach the children? Who will show them how? I'm asking you, where are the heroes now? There are those we don't know their names, who were faithful for their Lord. They were beaten, and they were chained and put to death by the sword. The world was not worthy of them. Is it worthy of me and you? We say we'll endure until the end. I pray to God that it's true. We're surrounded by witnesses as they watch us run our race with our eyes on the author of our faith. God is not ignorant of the affairs of man and his ways. He's put us here to make a stand. He's calling on us today. Where are the heroes now? When we need them so desperately, who will step out from the crowd and be strong enough to lead? Who will teach the children? Who will show them how? I'm asking you, where are the heroes now? He's calling us to be heroes now. When we need them so desperately, will you step out from the crowd and be strong enough to lead? Will you teach the children? Will you show them how? Because they're asking you, where are the heroes now? Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read, as I've been doing through this uh, Jewish New Testament translation, paraphrase, be what it will. Uh, Let me just read then, and we'll, we'll go into the study together. Trusting is being confident of what we hope for, convicted about things we do not see. It was for this that Scripture attested the merit of the people of old. By trusting, we understand that the universe was created through a spoken word of God, so that what is seen did not come into being out of existing phenomena. By trusting, Abel offered a greater sacrifice than Cain. Because of this, he was attested as righteous with God, giving him this testimony on the ground of his gifts. 
though, having trusted, he still continues to speak, even though he is dead. By trusting, Enoch was taken away from this life without seeing death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For he had been attested as having been prior to being taken away, well-pleasing to God. And without trusting, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to God because whoever approaches him must trust that he does exist and that he becomes a rewarder of those who seek him out. By trusting, Noah, after receiving divine warning about things as yet unseen, was filled with holy fear and built an ark to save his household. Through this trusting, he put the world under condemnation and received the righteousness that comes from trusting. By trusting, Abraham obeyed after being called to go out to a place which God would give him as a possession. Indeed, he went out without knowing where he was going. By trusting, he lived as a temporary resident in the land of the promise, as if it uh, were not his, staying in tents with Yitzhak and Yaakov, who were to receive what was promised along with him. For he was looking forward to the city with permanent foundations, of which the architect and builder is God. By trusting, he received potency to father a child, even when he was past the age for it, and as was Sarah herself, because he regarded the one who had made the promise as trustworthy. Therefore, this one man who was virtually dead fathered descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the grains of the sand on the seashore. All these people kept on trusting until they died without receiving what had been promised. They had only seen it and welcomed it from a distance, while acknowledging that while they were aliens and temporary residents on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are looking for a homeland. Now, if they were to keep recalling the one they left, they would have the opportunity to return. But it is, but as it is, they aspire to a better homeland, a heavenly one. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By trusting Abraham, when he was put to the test, offered up Yitzhak as a sacrifice. Yes, he offered up his only son. He whom he had received the promises, to whom it had been said, What is called your seed will be in Yitzhak, Isaac. For he had concluded that God could even raise people from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did so receive him. By trusting and Yitzhak, in his blessing over Yaakov and Esau, made reference to the events yet to come. By trusting, Yaakov, when he was dying, blessed each of Yosef's sons, leaning on his walking stick as he bowed in prayer. By trusting, Yosef, near the end of his life, remembered about the exodus of the people of Israel and gave instructions about what to do with his bones by trusting the parents of Moses hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's decree. By by trusting Moses, after he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes fixed on the reward. By trusting, he left Egypt, not fearing their king's anger. He persevered as one who sees the unseen. By trusting, he obeyed the requirements 
for the Passover, including the spearing of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By trusting, they walked through the Red Sea as through dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do it, the sea swallowed them up. By trusting, the walls of Jericho fell down after the people had marched around them for seven days. By trusting, Rahab, the prostitute, welcomed the spies and therefore did not die along with those who were disobedient. What more shall I say? There isn't time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through trusting conquered kingdoms, worked righteousness, received what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, had their weakness turned to strength, grew mighty in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, resurrected, and other people were stretched on the rack and beaten to death, refusing to be ransomed, so that they would gain a better resurrection. Others underwent the trials of being mocked and whipped and then chained and imprisoned. They were stoned, sawn in two, murdered by the sword. They went about clothed in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. The world was not worthy of them. All of these had their merit attested because of their trusting. Nevertheless, they did not receive what had been promised because God had planned something better and would involve us so that only uh, with us would they be brought to the goal. Okay, so that's the the passage. Let's uh, dig into the, the text and, and just again see what uh, the Lord has for us in these things. Okay, so we move into the first verse, Hebrews chapter 11. The first thing we're told is, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. As we just saw in that paraphrase, that translation, it speaks about trusting. And in essence, I suppose we could say that's that's a, a simple definition of what faith is. Faith is very broad, and in some senses we could say it's quite complex to truly understand. But really faith is that trust. It's that childlike trust. It's that absolute confidence in God and in what God has said and what God has uh, uh, decreed. In um, his commentary on this passage, Archibald MacLean, who I've uh, quoted a few, a few times in this study, uh, just says this. He opens the chapter by saying, now faith by which the just live. Now, it's a good link because it draws our memory back to what we've previously seen uh, in the, the previous chapters. The statement that the just shall live by faith from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And so the, the writer, let's just get the context here, the writer to the Hebrews has been going through talking about how Jesus is better, how Jesus is greater. These five warnings that we've been looking at through the book of Hebrews again, the warning of drifting in chapter two, uh, the warning of disobedience in chapter three. Uh, and just to me again clarify that, that disobedience was a lack of trust. Not, not going out and doing something wrong intentionally as such. It was just a lack of trust. That's what God classes as disobedience. And there's a real warning against that. And again, I've, I think almost every time I've mentioned this uh, situation that the children of Israel were not allowed to go into the promised land because, or those that, that, that didn't trust. So only uh, Joshua and Caleb did. But the rest of them, because they failed to trust, they were refused entrance by God. 
Not because of the golden calf, not because of all the lusting, not because of all the other things. It was the lack of trust. And it's a big issue with God. And this is why this chapter is in here. Now, this chapter is sometimes taken on its own. Uh, and it's a great chapter to take on its own. But we need to remember this in the context of this book. It's in the context of what this writer was trying to communicate. And all the way through, there's been these things telling us that actually the work of Jesus is complete. We've seen Jesus compared to angels and um, the the law, to Moses, to Aaron, to Joshua, uh, and all these kind of things, uh, showing that Jesus is better and greater, and that's why we should trust him. We've seen these warnings uh, shown, and particularly those difficult passages that we've explored in chapter 6 and then last time in chapter 10, which really remind us that we should have our eyes on what is coming. We should be living for heaven. There's a great song by a Christian singer-songwriter uh, called Charlie Peacock, uh, and the song, uh, the, the title of the song is, um, uh, or the, the, the chorus part of the song, we need to live like heaven is a real place in our everyday time and space. Uh, we need to live like heaven is a real place. And it's so true because often we live as if this world is our home. This world is all there is. Well, we get to a situation like we have here with coronavirus and we're kind of glad this world isn't our home, aren't we? We're glad this isn't where we're going to spend eternity. Now, what have the Lord has for us is so much better than these things. And this is what the, the writer has been saying. Don't go back into, for the, the, the recipients of the letter, don't go back into Judaism. Don't come back onto a legal system. For us, it's don't get back into the things that we once did before we were saved. Don't try and trust the things that you once trusted. We've got to realize that Jesus is better and greater. And our motivation should be the reality of all that is to come. And through this chapter, we're going to see that really laid out for us. So, Again, just give you some of the context of this. And so now this faith, this trusting, which is so important to God that our relationship with him is based upon this trust, is the substance of things hoped for. Uh, now, again, um, let me just read to you um, Archibald McLean. He says, now faith, uh, now faith by which the just live is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's that's exactly what it is. Uh, and it says, uh, for by it, the ancients obtained a good testimony. OK, so speaking of the uh, patriarchs, those that had gone before, the people that lived at the antediluvian or the time before the flood. And then we're going to go on to talk about uh, Abraham and so on. Uh, by faith in divine revelation is, is what we're being told. We understand that the worlds were produced by the word of God. The words were framed that everything that we see, we understand by trusting, by faith, that God is the one that brought it about. It didn't come about by random processes. It didn't come about by chance. You know, at the time that um, this was uh, penned, one of the prevailing views was that the universe and the earth had all been uh, created out of existing matter. And what the, the writer of the Hebrews here says, actually, you know what? Nothing came about out of the things that we can see. Um, just verse three again by faith in divine revelation we understand that the worlds were produced by the word of god commanding them to be so that the things which are seen were not made of things which did appear now in one foul swoop this does away with so many of the secular theories of how we came to be so you know one of the theories of course is that we came that this planet planet earth was a, a a filament that blew off the sun and gradually cooled and hardened and so on well that's not true 
because it's saying that the the worlds and everything we see wasn't made or were not made out of the things which appear. Well, the sun is there. We can see the sun. So what it's saying very clearly is that this world wasn't made by the sun. Not made by that. There's a whole corrupt theory. It doesn't match up. It doesn't stand up scientifically. It's been rejected by scientists, but it's still taught in schools. Uh, this idea uh, of the the universe and the, all, also all the, um, the planets in our solar system all coming from the sun. Again, there's lots of arguments against that uh, show it to be false. So again, we're just given the, the the reality that God created. And of course, we know the sun wasn't made uh, until after God had made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's not until a little bit later that God makes the earth, sorry, the sun and the moon as lights for the day and night. And then we're told uh, about uh, Abel, uh, sorry, Abel and it's this offering. We mentioned this the other week. Uh, again, I'm just going to read to you from uh, Archibald McLean. He just says his kind of commentary or paraphrase. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did, bringing not only a meat, but a sin offering, by which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying this upon his gifts, and by this, he being dead, yet speaks. Uh, it's interesting, you know, some people have wondered and you know, just mused over how was it that God received the offering from Abel? How was it that Cain knew that God was pleased with Abel's offering and not with the offering that had been given by Cain himself, that of grain and so on? Well, once again, um, if I just, I'm just going to just jump back uh, to some of my previous notes here. Um, okay so one of the, one of the suggestions is that the offering uh, that is given up by um, uh, Abel here the reason it was accepted and the reason they knew it had been accepted uh, is simply because they believe God simply received it by fire now we see that in a number of other scriptures um, we find of course with the, the dedication of the temple Leviticus 9.24 um, that God received that offering up by fire I'm sure you're familiar uh, again with the situation in Kings with Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. That offering was received up by fire as a testament that God was pleased, that God was uh, accepting this offering. Uh, we see it in Second Chronicles um, by the offerings made by David uh, as well, that the Lord received them up by fire. And so a lot of commentators believe that the, the way that God demonstrated he was pleased with Abel's offering was that it was received by fire. And of course, therefore, Cain's is just sat there, left there, you know, nothing happening to it. And Cain becomes really cross. And we mentioned this a few studies back. But the reason is that Cain was offering the work of his hands. Okay, that was what he did. It was a work of his hands that he was offering. And God says, that's not good enough. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can bring that is pleasing to God, that is going to be worthy. We're actually told that our righteousness in Isaiah is like filthy rags. Okay, that, that's, that's how our best is, is deemed by God. And so we can't come by offering our best. We come purely based upon the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that we could be right and pleasing with God. It's, it's a thing the world struggles so much to understand. Because, you know, people want to try and do something. And it's almost insulting to say you can't do anything to get right because we're so used to trying to do our best and, you know, be rewarded for, for that which we do. You know, we, we have this kind of system, don't we, where we work for our employers, we work hard and we expect to be remunerated for it. But that's not the way it is with God. There's nothing that we could bring 
that is acceptable to a holy God. And that's the key, that God is holy, we are not. And yet when we come to him through Jesus, in the sense as Abel did by offering a blood sacrifice, that was pleasing to God because it looked forward to the completed work of Jesus Christ. We carry on verse 5 and it says by faith Enoch who we know was the seventh from Adam was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him and then we're told this but before his translation it was testified that he pleased God and that's by walking with him. We're told that Enoch walked uh, with God. Just an incredible statement. I mean, we're not told a lot about Enoch in scripture. But that one statement that will live for eternity is that this man had a testimony that he walked with God. What a great thing to have recorded in God's word of you. That we walked or that this man walked with God. And we have that option of choosing to walk with him. We're told to walk by faith, not by sight. That's trusting. That's what the writer is saying in this chapter, that we need to trust him. Don't go by the things we see in the natural, but by that which we understand to be true spiritually. And then it goes on. And just to, just to comment, of course, that we're all going to be in that position that Enoch was. If the Lord tarries, sorry, if, if the Lord doesn't tarry, he comes back soon, that we will be translated. This is one of those cases in scripture where we see what we tend to refer to as a rapture. Somebody taken alive from earth to heaven. People that say, oh, I don't believe in the rapture. Well, it's kind of a mute point because it's clearly in scripture. We know that this man here, Enoch, was certainly translated, taken from earth to heaven. We have Jesus who was also taken from earth to heaven. We have Elijah that was taken from earth to heaven. We have also the two witnesses in the book of Revelation that after they're martyred, they come back to life. But then they're taken alive from earth to heaven. So there's numerous examples of this. And it's exactly what Paul tells us in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, that at some point in the future we'll be taken uh, alive from earth to heaven. Again, if the Lord tarries. Paul thought he would be alive at the time. He writes as if it was imminent. Well, if that was imminent some um, almost best part of 2,000 years ago, then it's even more imminent now, isn't it? And then we're told verse 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that approaches God as to worship him acceptably, is really the idea, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. It's very simple. You know, if we're going to go to God, not only do we have to believe he exists, but that we believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And this, again, has been part of the theme we've been looking at, that God has promised us blessing. He's promised us inheritance. He's promised us wards. Just look at the end of the previous chapter. In verse um, 34 of the previous chapter, chapter 10, it says there, For you had compassion on me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have a better and in, uh, have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And then the last verse, uh, it says, um, oh, sorry, um, verse 37, it says, um, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Uh, oh, sorry, it was the previous verse I she meant to read, verse 36. Uh, For ye have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. There's countless references in Hebrews already that we've seen to that which is promised. Uh, verse 23 of chapter 10. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful 
the promise. What is that promise? Well, not only is it the promise of salvation, but it's the promise of these blessings that are yet to come. And this is why we're being urged to, to hold on, to stay true to God, to keep walking this walk. We told verse 6, but without faith it's impossible to please God. Again, for he that approaches God so as to worship him acceptably must believe that he is and a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then we're given these examples. So by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Again, the things that he'd not seen were the flood. Up until that point we understand from scripture that it hadn't rained. Initially God's way of working was that a mist had gone up from the ground to water the earth. And there's seemingly this water canopy around the earth that came crashing down at the time of the flood. But Noah hadn't seen rain. You know, going and telling your friends that I'm going to be building a boat. And they say, well, what's a boat? Well, it's something to float on water. Well, water's a long way from here. And, you know, it's going to rain. What's rain? You know, Noah had to accept all those things that God had revealed to him by faith, even though he'd not seen them. And of course, you know, we see it wasn't long before well, i say it wasn't it was a it was a hundred years or so in the building of the ark and it was a, a huge project but it, it came to pass that those that had been mocking noah those that had looked on scornfully came to realize that he was trusting the one and true god and his faith was rewarded as a result uh, and he just says again that uh, prepared not for the salvation of his family by which he condemned the unbelieving world uh or the ungodly world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith uh, and again, by verse eight, uh, by faith in the divine promises, Abraham being called to go out from his kindred and native country unto a place which he was afterwards to receive for an inheritance, uh, implicably obeyed. OK, and, and went out not knowing whether he was going. That's really what faith is about. It's willing to take that step, not quite sure of what's next. But you see, God always knows what's next. God knows what's coming. We may not, we may not see where we're going next, but is that walk by faith? You see, this is why we need to keep our hearts and minds and heads in God's word, because Psalm 119, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, verse 105, that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You know, if you go out and it's dark at night and you have a lamp for your feet, you, you might not see the end of the path, but you just see the next steps. That's all you need to keep going. And that's what the word of God does for us. It gives us that clarity to see where we're going next. Verse nine, by faith, he sojourned in the land of Canaan. Okay, the land of promise uh, as in a strange land. You know, the whole of Abraham's time, although he'd been promised this land, he never received it as such as an inheritance. Uh, we're told as a strange land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the co-heirs of the same promise. For he expected the heavenly city of which the planner and architect is God. So Abraham is looking for something so much bigger, so much greater. I'm just going to re just return to the psalm we read earlier on. Uh, just bear with me a second as I just turn back. In Psalm 46, uh, it just speaks there. Um, Verse four, it says, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the most high. We were talking last time about the tabernacle and so on. Uh, and uh, the fact that the, what we have on or had on earth with the Jewish tabernacle and the temple was just a model. Well, this is referencing the real thing. And then it speaks verse five in Psalm 46, that God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her 
And that right early. See, God is in the midst of this new city, this new place that he's been preparing for us. This is the, the, the hope that we have. That's what we're, we're looking forward to. So again, verse 10, he expected the heavenly city of which God is the planner and architect. And then verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself, who was barren, received ability for the conception of seed. And when past the time of age, brought forth a child because she judged him faithful who had promised her a son. Now, it's interesting because, as you know already, I'm sure, initially, um, Sarah uh, laughed when she was told that she was going to have a child. You remember the situation? Um, But she came to realize that God was true. God was faithful and she trusted God for this promise. Uh, And we're told verse 12, therefore there sprang even from one and he in these respects became dead. Uh, It's speaking of Abraham, although he's kind of past the age of being able to have children. It came from him, a race as the stars of heaven in multitude and as the sand, which is on the shore of the sea, innumerable. Just a reference back to Genesis 12, the promise that was given to Abraham verse 13 all these died in faith not having received the accomplishment of the promises but seeing them afar off and being persuaded of them and embracing them they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for they who say such things declare plainly that they earnestly seek their native country and if indeed they had been mindful of chaldea which is in abraham's case where he'd come from that country from which they came out they might have had opportunity to return to it what the writer is saying is you know if the place abraham was looking for was was on earth if he was looking for home he could have gone home he could have gone back to chaldea where he'd come from but he doesn't because he knew the real home the real place the homeland i think as we read earlier the homeland that he was looking for isn't on this earth our homeland isn't on this earth and for their entire lives, they, they dwelt in tents because they were looking forward. To, they didn't want to build a permanent dwelling here because they were looking for something yet future, something that God was preparing for them. There is, a, I guess, a danger for us that we build so much on the here and now. And we tend to think so often about this place as home, where we are home. But really, this isn't our home. This is just a tent, a temporary dwelling place for us whilst we get ready to go home our real home is in heaven that's where there'll be peace that's where there'll be joy everlasting that's where we'll be in the presence of the lord and it will be beyond anything that we can imagine it will truly be out of this world verse 16 uh, but now they eagerly desire a better country than any on earth that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god you see you see the link here between trusting god and being in a sense in that relationship with God that's what we need you know there are many people that say they know God and so on but do they trust God are they really prepared to put their faith in him and this is what this is really all about and it says uh, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them and Archibald McLean just adds even the new Jerusalem that's what we've been that's what we're looking forward to that's the new city verse 17 by faith Abraham when tried offer up Isaac I mean, this is one of the most amazing acts of faith in all of Scripture, I think. You know, yeah, he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, concerning whom it had been said that in Isaac your she- thy seed shall be called. This is a really important point, because Abraham, in this uh, act of offering up his son, did so in faith because God had already said that Isaac will be the one through whom your descendants will come. So Abraham knew that if offering up Isaac 
meant that he had to, 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 to put him to death, he trusted that God would raise him back to life. Because he knew that if his descendants had to come through Isaac, Isaac had to be resurrected. So whatever test God was putting him through, he just trusted that God was in complete control. Abraham also understood that there was a prophetic insight as to what he was doing that he says he names the place in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen and I'm sure you're aware we said before that Mount Moriah where Abraham went to offer up his son is the same as you and I would call Calvary it's the same place same mountain it's the same uh, range of mountains in uh, well where Jerusalem effectively is today uh, and this is the place that Abraham would have offered up his son but God of course steps in and we know the account in Genesis uh, and he says, uh, verse 19, accounting that although he were a, although he were burnt to ashes is what Archibald McLean says. And that's effectively what Abraham perceived could happen. Abraham believed even if that did happen, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And from whence also he did receive him in a figure. In a sense, he was dead. You know, in fact, from the time that God says to Abraham, I want you to go and offer up your son, your only son, Isaac. It was three days that effectively Isaac was dead to abraham because abraham didn't go on the journey thinking i wonder if i'll go through with it or not he left on that journey to mount moriah believing that he was going to offer up his son so from that point that the command was given isaac was as it were dead to abraham how interesting that there's those three days and then he receives him back resurrected a wonderful picture of course of jesus uh, <clears throat> Uh, and so verse 20 by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph see again it's the faith you read through that prophecy in the end of the book of Genesis each of those statements that Jacob makes over his children is prophetic speaking of their future including speaking of um, the, the Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah and so on um, and worshipping God Joseph uh, worshipping God bowed down or Jacob's rather worshiping God bowed down on the top of his staff. We're then told in verse 22 that by faith, Joseph approaching his end made mention of the departure of the children of Israel out of Egypt, of course, and gave charge concerning his bones. Joseph knew that their homeland was Canaan or what we now know as Israel. That was the land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Joseph knew full well they weren't going to stay in Egypt. At some point, the Lord would deliver them and take them back to that place. Now, at the point that Joseph dies, they're still in favor and things are going well in Egypt. But at that point, before the persecution comes, Joseph knew and made the, the, them to make this promise that they would take his bones back to the land, which, of course, they did when they left uh, with Moses. Uh, and so verse 23, by faith, Moses, when born, was hid three months by his parents again because they saw uh, the child remarkably beautiful. They, they just saw something in him. They, they recognized God's plan and purpose. Uh, what they understood, we don't understand. We don't know. Uh, but they had faith. They trusted and we're told that they feared not the commandment of the king, which had been obviously to destroy all the male children. Verse 24 carries on. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If you remember, Pharaoh's daughter had come out and discovered Moses as a baby. Incredibly how God works. She then gives Moses back to Miriam, his sister, and to Miriam's mum, uh, to, to Jochebed, the, the mother. And the mother actually, Moses' mum, actually gets to bring him up to wean him before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, who then adopts him effectively as her own. But just God's grace in allowing that situation. And so uh, we read then um, that when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter who had adopted him, but rather choosing rather to be evil treated with the people of God 
than to have a temporary enjoyment of the pleasures of sin. You know, I, I, as, it, as it puts it here, you know, the, the, the whole idea of this sin for a season. You know, sin isn't something that will give us any inheritance. It won't give us any future blessing. All it will do is take from us. It's been said, I'm sure you've heard it before, that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it'll cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's, that's what sin does. It will never actually add to us. It will never help us. It will never benefit us in any way. And, and of course, Moses recognized this, that he could have stayed with the luxury and the, all the wonderful things he'd have had in Egypt. There is, interestingly, archaeologically, there's a discovery was made of a, of a bust, uh, and they think that it was actually being uh, done for Moses. Uh, funnily enough, the nose has been broken off of this thing, uh, and they, they suspect that this was a, a slight against Moses because they were expecting Moses to potentially go on and be the next Pharaoh. Now, wouldn't you have thought that in Moses' position, you thought, well, I'll wait till I'm at the top, and then God can really use me, and when I'm in control, I can then you know let the people go. But he doesn't. He trusts God. He has his faith that, that God is going to do this work. And, of course, Moses sets out, trying to do the work himself again learning that you have to do things god's way it's not just the desire uh, that you need to have or the zeal it's understanding that we need to walk in step with the lord and his timing is not always our timing moses had to wait 40 years for this opportunity uh, as so verse 25 tells us that it's choosing rather to be evil treated with the people of god than to have a temporary enjoyment of the pleasures of sin he says esteeming the reproach of christ greater riches than the treasures of egypt you know Christ Jesus endured all sorts of things for us. And in a sense, this was figurative of all that was to come. Uh, Moses, in this sense, is a type of Christ. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, so for he looked uh, off from these to the recompense of reward in a future state. So again, Moses looking forward to that which is future. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he boldly persisted as seeing the invisible God under whom he acted. Uh, it's Archibald McLean's addition there. In verse 28, by faith he appointed the Passover and the pouring out of the blood that he who destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians might not touch theirs. It was a faith thing. God had said he was going to come over the land, that the firstborn of the land were going to die. But the houses that were marked, the lintels uh, and the doorposts marked by the blood of an innocent lamb that had to be taken on the 10th day of the month, kept with the family until the 14th day of the month. And then between the evenings, that lamb had to be sacrificed. It just speaks of Jesus. Jesus was taken on the 10th day of the month. That was the day he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then he was effectively kept the nation. There was this adoration, there was this worship, there was praise, certainly by those close to him. But then on the 14th day of the month, everybody kind of turns against him, apart from his own disciples. And he's then crucified again between the evenings. Uh, he's crucified for the people as a sinless offering okay, for uh, to, to bring redemption. Uh, and the deliverance, just as the, the, the lamb effectively spoke of their deliverance, so Jesus speaks of the, the deliverance. Um, and in verse 29, by faith they passed through uh, the Red Sea as by dry land. I mean, I, I just, that's an incredible step of faith, isn't it? And we spoke about Noah who, who acted not seeing things and trusting God. But you think about the situation with Moses at the Red Sea. The, the people are about to lynch him. They're so frustrated. They, they, they think they're going to die. They're frightened. They don't know which way to turn. The Egyptian army is bearing down on them. God had put this, this pillar of fire by, between the two of them, between the two groups. 
And then they, they say, there's nowhere to go. There's no way out. You know, sometimes God brings us to those places where there is no other option. And God does it because he wants to teach us to trust him. And we have to learn to trust him. And sometimes we have to go through these difficult situations. But you know what? In, a, in an instant, we talked about this last time again. In an instant, Jesus can change those circumstances when we trust him. And of course, Moses reaches out with Aaron's rod. They just strike the water. The water's part. They go through on this dry land. <clears throat> so again, by faith, they pass through the Red Sea as by dry land, of which the Egyptians, taking trial, were swallowed up. Okay, so the Egyptians, we know, uh, all drowned in the water. And then we talk about the next step, just is a great summary of the history of the nation. Uh, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, having been encompassed seven days. So they, they marched around, if you remember, for, 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 for six days. And the seventh day, they six days they marched around once. The seventh day, they go out and they march around seven times. You know, the, the, the people in Jericho must have been thinking, what are these Jews doing? What are they? Why does marching? They're not making a sound. They're just silent. You know, and, and probably they were thinking they were just going to try and bore them to death. Of course, they didn't realize that God had this plan, this purpose. Uh, there's some great archaeology, uh, again, attesting to these things, to the walls of Jericho being literally pushed down. Uh, I haven't got time to dig into that this morning, but <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but uh, uh, just fascinating uh, as we look at the history that proves these things of Scripture. Uh, but by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, having been encompassed seven days. And then we're told about Rahab, the harlot. Who, who wasn't destroyed with the unbelievers, having received the spies, again, uh, in peace. And obviously she concealed them, she kept them. Uh, and interestingly, although people speak about her, we know that she's in this lineage, this line that comes down to Jesus. And people say, well, why would there be somebody like this, uh, you know, a lady of, of ill repute? But actually, we know that she hid them in the, these flax, uh, in, uh, amongst the flax in the roof. Uh, well, that would have taken time. They were drying out there. It implies, and a lot of commentators go down this road, of saying that she was in the middle of trying to change profession. She was looking for another way to provide income. Uh, and that there was already this willingness, this change in her heart. She recognized that her lifestyle wasn't right. Um, just another aside there. But she hides the spies. They eventually escape. And because of that, she puts this scarlet uh, cord out of the window. When they come to Jericho, and when the walls come down, they see her and they rescue her and she's saved. Uh, again, just speaks of that that call, speaks of the blood of Christ. Uh, verse 32, uh, and the writer just goes on. You just detect there's almost that, like, I just want to keep talking about this. God is so good, the things he's done, the way he's delivered people. So first of all, uh, what should I say more? For the time would have failed me to give narration concerning Gideon. What a great man. You know, this, this man who thought he was nothing. He thought he was, he was the, the weakest of his father's family and the weakest tribe in the tribe of Benjamin and so on. And yet God raises him up to be this mighty deliverer of the nation. You know, and you end up with this great army that's whittled down and just a few, just these, these 300 souls that go against the Midianites. And I just love the beautiful picture. You know, you know the situation. They surround the Midianites and they all have these, these jars. And inside the jars they have these lights, these candles that are burning. And at the sound of the trumpet at the right time, they break the jars and the light shines through. And of course, the Midianites look up and they're surrounded. They think there's a whole army there and they start fighting amongst themselves and they flee every which way. And God gives this incredible victory to Gideon and his men. But the lovely picture there is that God brings victory by that light shining through broken vessels. What a lovely picture. You know, we're broken vessels, aren't we? You know, all the problems and challenges and things we've experienced, we're broken. Uh, well, we, we don't need a strong army. We just need a strong God. 
And that, that's all it takes. Just that trust. Again, this whole chapter, just saying, trust me. Um, we're told also of uh, Barak. Uh, again, you need to read through the book of Judges to get the details of these uh, incredible individuals and the deliverance that God gives to the nation of Israel um, through uh, Barak and, of course, Deborah alongside Barak. Uh, that amazing situation. Samson, we all know the story of Samson, I'm sure, very well. Uh, of Jephthah. Another man of great faith uh, who trusted God. There is a question mark, some throw over Jeff that they think that he offered his daughter as a sacrifice. I totally disregard that. I don't think that's true at all. If you read the context of that chapter in the book of Judges, what he does, he offers to give to the Lord. When he comes back from the battle, if God gives him victory, either an animal sacrifice or, or whatever comes out of his house will be given to the Lord. And what he does, I believe, is his dedicates his daughter to the Lord for the remainder of her days. And she's willing to go along with this. She accepts this. Uh, I, I don't believe there's any suggestion there that there's a, a human sacrifice, as some people have tried to suggest. Now, but Jephthah was a man of faith, trusted God, and he de- dedicated his daughter to the Lord, just as, as Hannah did uh, with, Sam, uh, with the Samuel as well. Same sort of situation. Uh, and I, actually, it could well have been on the back of that situation with Jephthah that Hannah had this already in mind when she then dedicated uh, Samuel to the Lord. And we talk of David. I mean, we could talk all morning of David. It's such a wonderful character in Scripture. I mean, his faith. I, I love one of the greatest moments of David's ministry, his life, his career, is when everybody abandons him. When he flees from Saul, in fear of his life... And we read that he comforted himself in the Lord. Everything else falling apart. But he goes to God and says, you know what, God, you are my refuge and my strength. Um, what, a, what a great statement. Listen to that song again that we played earlier. So encouraging. And then of course, Samuel uh, and the prophets. I mean, we, we don't have the time to go through those and the writer doesn't do so. But who through faith uh, vanquished uh, kingdoms, rule righteousness, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions. Well, of course, we know Daniel is referenced there. Uh, extinguish the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. We're made strong from weakness. That's exactly what God does. And he will do the same in us if we trust him. Whatever situation or circumstance we face, face, this chapter is here to say, you know what? There's nothing that God hasn't already dealt with, already thought about. There's nothing he can't cope with. I think I mentioned it on Thursday at our Bible study, um, or maybe in the prayer meeting on Tuesday. But either way, about uh, some people, uh, somebody once say about you know they only take the big problems to God, and the reply was given, "Well, which problems are big to God? You see, there are no big problems to God. We can take everything to Him." Again, verse 34, so extinguished the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in battle and rooted the camps of the aliens, of the foreigners, the enemies that had come against them. And we're told of women that received their dead children by resurrection. Um, but others were tortured. And again, just as we, we've already seen with, with uh, Moses and others, they didn't esteem that which they could gain now worth holding on to. Okay, they were looking forward to something better, something future, uh, not accepting by deliverance uh, or accepting deliverance again by sinful compliances, by by doing things they knew weren't right, that they might obtain a better resurrection. All this is about, again, just the context, the Hebrews that were being written to here were getting back into the law, back into Judaism. And this is saying, no, don't look backwards, look forwards. Look to where we're going. Look to what God is preparing and planning for us. 
Others had trials of mockery and scourgings, and moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, and we believe that's a reference to Isaiah, who, uh, again, commentator scholars think was uh, sawn in half by Manasseh, uh, the, one of the worst kings of, of Judah, just leading up to the end of that period of time before they were taken away to Babylon. Uh, and they were tempted, uh, they died by the slaughter of the sword, and they went about clothed in sheep and goat skins. Well, clearly a reference there to John the Baptist. Speaking of all these individuals, we've got so many names, so many people that have lived their lives. And as I said earlier, you know, we, we've got these accounts like Fox's Book, Book of Martyrs and so on, and so many others. Today we have Voice of the Martyrs and various other ministry organizations that you can sign up, you can get their emails, and they'll tell you about these people that today are giving their lives. You know, these are the people that we are walking with. This journey that we're taking, we're doing it with these people and we can have great confidence and trust that God has sustained and helped these people through the ages. He's enabled them like Latimer and Ridley and like um, well, there's so many names that we could we could bring out uh, from uh, from the past from Wycliffe uh, and so many individuals. And over the coming weeks, we might read some of those more uh, accounts. But these individuals that gave their lives, we're, we're part of that team. We're with them. And the Lord is calling us to walk with faith, not again looking back, but looking forward. <clears throat> again, just to go picking up halfway through verse 37, uh, they were clothed uh, in sheep and goatskins, being persons destitute, afflicted, and in all respects maltreated. Of We're told of whom the world was not worthy. You know, I, I just love that statement. You know, the world isn't worthy of these people. That they, they were, they were living for for a world, a place beyond this world, beyond anything this world can understand or know. And the rewards of this world would never match what they deserve. There's nothing that they could have been given that will be greater than that which they're going to receive. And we thought they wandered in deserts and mountains. Of course, we know John the Baptist and Elijah and uh, David and many others, uh, and lurked in dens and caves of the earth. Now, all these having obtained a good testimony on account of faith, all of them did it. They've all trusted God in every bizarre and diverse situation they trusted. You know, there's not going to be a situation that you and I come up against, be it coronavirus, be it whatever other problem that we will come up against that God is not able to sustain us through. And again, our focus should be on that which is coming. That is our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Again, on the count of faith, uh, receive not the accomplishment of the promise in this life. You see, these individuals didn't get what they were looking forward to while they were alive. It, it, they won't get it before we do, because we're told in verse 40, the last verse of the chapter, God having provided or, or foreseen something better for us. And then we're told this is great statement. And what a privilege for you and I. When you think of all those people we've talked about this morning and, and you know, you and I really think that we should, you know, uh, these, these people should be really given great rewards because of the lives they've lived and the faith they have. And we're told um, something better for us, that without us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they're not going to get the rewards before we're there with them. They're not going to get these blessings that are spoken about, the promises, until we're all there together. We're kind of holding them up, getting their rewards, because God is waiting for that time when we're all blessed together. Just one final thing in closing. 
Don McClure uh, has got a fantastic teaching. You can Google it. If you find it on the web, it's great. It's just on Acts uh, uh, 20, verse 28. Uh, the scripture that speaks about, for my life is is worth nothing, or, or uh, unless I use it for... Again, just re- read you the scripture so I quote it correctly, uh, from Acts 20, 24. <clears throat> and it just says this, uh, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Okay, so the Living Bible paraphrase of that is, life is worth nothing unless I use it for the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. And Don McClure, in his study on this particular verse, uh, he's a Calvary pastor from America, um, was just saying, you know, he'd gone through a number of challenges and uh, they lost a child. Um, he had a number of health issues and things like that. And he was just really going before God one day and just complaining, as we sometimes do, and saying, oh, why have you allowed this situation? And, you know, it doesn't seem fair. And God reminded him of this verse, which he said made him cross. He said, because that was my verse. He said, God can't use my verse against me. You know, but God was reminding him of this. And the the point he went on to say is, you know, he just pictures being in a, a situation before heaven. He said, just imagine just that there's an arena outside of heaven before we get to go in. And in that arena, there's all the saints from all the ages. And we go in and you're up on, and you see up on stage people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, and Gideon, and these individuals, and, and, and uh, Moses, and Noah, and these people that, that literally, that they gave their lives to, to serve the Lord. And, and he said, you know, I, could, I know what's going to happen. He said, I could be, I'll be in the front row, and they'll say, right, before you go into heaven, if any of you got any gripes, any complaints about God, now's the time. Just air them, just share them, and we'll talk them through. And he said, you know, it'd be like, just imagine John the Baptist there, you know, or, or one of the others saying, okay, Don, just, just tell us what your problems were. And, and Don said, you know, it, it, all of a sudden you start to realize our own predicaments, the challenges we faced. When you look at, you know, someone like John the Baptist who was beheaded, you know, when you see Isaiah, you know, sawn in two, when you see these other individuals and people like Polycarp, who we mentioned earlier. And you start to think, and the persecuted Christians around the world even today, and it starts to put our own problems in perspective. You know, these are all looking forward to that which is coming, that which is so much better and greater than this now. And again, the encouragement of this chapter, the admonishment to us is to hold on. It's, it's, the reward is there. We just got to hold on. The Lord is going to give us so much better and greater than we can imagine in this time. Let's bow our hearts. Father, We thank you for this opportunity just to review these things, to be reminded of this incredible company of believers that have trusted you through the ages, that have given their lives to follow you. Lord, not knowing where they were going, not necessarily knowing the outcomes or what was going to happen next, but Lord, in each situation and circumstance, they trusted you. Oh Lord, give us that trust. And Lord, as as we see in this chapter, help us not to look back to what was, but to look forward to that which is coming. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.